Instead of the title of this uh, lesson being a few additional thoughts, it could have been miscellany. Uh, that word means a mixture of various things. And uh, wh whatever you call it, this is the final lesson in our series on worship. And, and the goal of this series has been to encourage us in our thinking about worship in such a way that will make uh, our worship more meaningful to us. And if we've been able to accomplish that, uh, we ought to be thankful. We're better off if our worship becomes more meaningful to us. I, I appreciate the opportunity to have taught this class, and I want to thank those of you who have made uh, kind comments, and those of you who have refrained from making ugly comments, uh, either way, I thank both of you. Uh, next Lord's Day, somebody asked me about this, I believe that the topic is uh, lessons from little letters. <laughs> those obviously are biblical letters, and uh, these are lessons that can be gained even from shorter biblical letters. Over the course of the uh, previous 12 weeks, we have likely not covered everything that could have or should have been covered with regard to worship. W worship is uh, too broad a subject and too deep a subject to be confined just to 12 brief lessons. And so what I wanted to do at the end of the series was to address a few additional matters. Some of them will appear to be a little redundant. I don't mind that. Some of them will be things that we have not really talked about yet. Um, we still won't cover everything. It just is not possible to quickly cover everything about worship. And these are not in any special order on your outline. Uh, and hopefully these will be just miscellany and not hodgepodge. I'm, I'm giving some dictionary lessons this morning as well. Hodgepodge, according to the dictionary, is a jumble. But then you have to go to jumble and find out that jumble means, among other things, a state of confusion. I hope this is not a hodgepodge because I don't think I'm confused. But let's get to these items. Let's talk about the first one. These are all in the form of questions. What about reading God's Word? Now, in Lesson 8 or Lesson 9, we saw that wonderful scene in the Old Testament book of Nehemiah, chapter 8 about the reading of God's Word to God's people. And that reading, which incidentally lasted how long? About a half a day. About a half a day. That reading had a great impact on the people who heard it. They stood to hear it. Some of us nearly faint when we stand for one song, don't we? But, but they stood 
to listen to the word of God. And when you get to verse 6 of Nehemiah 8, it says they bowed their heads and worshipped. The, the reading of God's word brought worship to them because they were honoring that word. In the New Testament, Paul gave this inspired instruction to Timothy. It's on your outline, but you may have it in your Bible if you'd rather look there, 1 Timothy 4.13. 1 Timothy 4.13 says, Till I come, and we read this earlier, Till I come, give attention to reading. In the original language, the Greek word means public reading. It's not you privately reading on your own. Paul is telling Timothy, pay attention to what is read. We don't do much by the way of just reading in our worship services, do we? I mean only reading. Oh, you're going to hear a scripture reading. It may be one verse, two verse, five verses. Not going to be very much, is it? During the sermon, there likely will be either quoted or read several verses, maybe a number of them. But in the main, as far as our worship service, we don't do a lot of reading, do we? That is public reading. So I'm going to ask you some questions. Could we have in our worship assembly a long reading? Incidentally, talking about grammar lessons, Alan's got one for himself. L-E-N-G-T-H-Y, on your outline, lengthy, was not a good choice of words. We don't normally use it in a bad way, but if you go to the dictionary and read that word, which I did too late, it says, drawn out... <laughs> indicating overused too much. <laughs> it's too much. So I'm not asking should we have a too much reading. Now, there is a second word, lengthily, which is not necessarily a bad word, but it does mean long. So what I'm saying is, could we have a long reading? When I say long reading, I mean, could someone get up and read ten psalms or five chapters or an entire book. Could somebody do that? Wouldn't be a violation of God's will, would it, to do it? But then the other question would have to be, what kind of obstacles would we face in doing that? You know the first one, don't you? You would certainly have to select good readers. One of the things that is noticeable, if you're a good reader, is somebody reading Scripture is not a good reader. And, and I'm not criticizing anyway, anybody, but let's just be honest. There are some people who are not good readers. They just aren't. And so you'd have to be sure you got a good reader, and you would have to be sure that it was practiced before doing it. You wouldn't just want somebody to get up and start reading and not knowing what he's reading, how long he's going to read. You would have 
all of that worked out in advance. Third problem. Some would not be happy if no interpretation was given. We can't just hear the Word of God, can we? Because we're not smart enough to figure out what it says, are we? But don't you do that at home? When you do your daily reading in your Bible, you don't have a preacher there telling you what it means, do you? Now, you may use a commentary, but I bet you don't do that most often. You read and you understand what's written. Now, I'm not suggesting we shouldn't have interpretation. In Nehemiah 8, they not only had reading, but they had uh, interpretation as well. Because it was important to make sure that it was understood. You, you would certainly need passages that were clear and understandable. <laughs> You, you wouldn't want to read for a long time something that was really difficult to understand for, for the average audience. And so maybe what you could do, I'm not saying we should do this, what if you read three or four or five psalms? That took up 15 minutes and then 15 minutes of interpretation just quickly going over what points needed to be pointed out. Now, let me ask you this. Have any of you ever been in a service that has just featured a reading? Did? Tell me about it. Say it loudly, please. What if, uh, and maybe Andy could do it, I could never do it, uh, Hugo McCord, with whom I worked for a while, had a memorized sermon that was only scripture and went through the entire trial and crucifixion and resurrection of Christ, said every word of it by memory. Great mind. What if you just got up and read the entire crucifixion scene? Could that be understood? Could it be understood without interpretation? I think so. It's plainly stated. Anyway, I'm not suggesting we do it. I'm saying there wouldn't be anything wrong with doing it. You just would have to take some precautions to make sure it was done well. The next point has to do with four the question, four ways to worship? I don't know who the first one who did it, but years ago a sermon, and maybe more than one sermon, was preached with this emphasis that there are four ways to worship. Number one is you can worship the wrong God. I think we would immediately think of idol worshipers. They're worshiping the wrong God. Acts uh, 17 in Athens, the God you don't know, <laughs> they were worshiping an unknown God. How can you do that? Worshiping a God in ignorance, and Paul said, I'm going to tell you about him. 
I've told you before, and there are people who worship things of nature. In my trips to India, I saw people worship cobras. I knew that there were people who worshipped a large tree. Worship the tree. There are groups that worship ancestors. There are people in our country who worship the sun. And so you can worship the wrong God. But I wonder about those who change the nature of God. Aren't they really worshiping the wrong God? Listen, Muslims don't worship the right God. And it's not just because they call him Allah. The God they worship has to be a God that was created in a book called the Koran who wants their people to destroy anybody who is not of them. That's not God. God has not told his people, you go out and kill all the infidels. Has he? So they worship the wrong God. You, you think about those who, on the other hand, who see only a God of love and not a God who expects obedience. These are the people who say, my God would not send anyone to hell. Now they didn't get that from the Bible, but they're convinced that their God is a kindly old grandfather sitting on his throne, patting everybody on the head and saying, I don't care what you did, you're okay. That is not God. The Bible talks often of the wrath of God as well as the love of God. The Jehovah Witnesses, not, not trying to say anything bad, I'm saying what's honest. Jehovah Witnesses make Jesus a created being inferior to the Father. Is that the wrong God? Did Jesus say, I and the Father are one? If you have seen me, you have seen the Father? Our Lord was either God, or He was a terrible blasphemer, just like the Jews said He was. They said He makes Himself equal to God, and they killed Him for that, but they were wrong. Seventh-day Adventist are among those people who carry over Old Testament practices in their worship and try to say that's what we ought to be doing today. We ought to still be worshiping on the Sabbath. Think about the Jews. They've taken Old Testament commandments and have said that's the way we ought to worship today. That's... Not what God wants. Well, we can worship the wrong God. We can worship the wrong God, the right God in the wrong way. We think of, of some of the denominational groups and even some churches of Christ that disregard New Testament instructions in favor of what pleases them or what pleases those they're seeking to gain. They've tried to carry over, again, those Old Testament practices into New Testament era. You could worship the right God in the right way with the wrong attitude. 
What city, New Testament city, would you think of first? What church would you think of first that worshiped the right God in the right way with the wrong attitude? The Corinthians. You know, we studied about abuses of the Lord's Supper. It wasn't that they weren't taking the Lord's Supper. They were taking it in the wrong way. Had the wrong attitude about it. I've told this before. You forgot. I haven't, but I'll tell it again. I had the misfortune of preaching for a church in western Oklahoma where an elder and his wife would not speak to their nephew and his wife who were members of the same congregation. Now, how did they worship? How did they worship? How did they obey what Jesus said? If you don't forgive, you won't be forgiven. How did they do that? They were very bitter, very ugly about it. I'm glad I was only there 13 months. Or you could worship the right God in the right way with the right attitude, and that should be our desire. I want to worship the right God. I want to do it in the right way. I want to have the right attitude when I do it. Now let me tell you what I find sad about this outline, these four things. Did you notice that there are more ways to fail to worship correctly than there are to worship correctly? You can fail in three ways. You can succeed only in one. And that is if you worship the right God in the right way with the right attitude. Four ways to worship. Number three, are things really different? The reason I put this down is that you might have had the experience of having a conversation with someone who is a part of a church that no longer worships as the New Testament teaches. And in that conversation with such a person, you might hear somebody say, but things are different today. They might say, the world was not then what it is now, or it's not now what it was then. When all of the trouble within the churches of Christ about changing worship really was at its genesis, we would likely hear things like, oh, you're just interested in 1950s worship. Okay, so here's some question. Was 50s worship wrong? If it was, we should never have worshiped like we did in the 50s. Was it right then? Was it right in the 60s and the 70s and the 80s and the 90s? That's the real question, you see. The problem is that their statement is tied to the wrong thing. They're saying we can't worship in 2019 like we did in 1950. And the question is, why not? Okay, so let's examine this. Was the world then, what was it like? Well, there were cultural differences, right? Ever heard of Jews and Gentiles? Those are cultural differences. 
there was geographic separation. Look in the back of your Bible at one of those maps and see all of Paul's missionary journeys. There were people scattered out, and as the gospel advanced, people were further and further away from each other. There were different generations. The New Testament speaks to fathers and to children, to parents. It, it, you know, there were different generations. There were economic differences. Not everybody was the same economic level in the first century church, whether there were poor people and wealthy people. There certainly were educational differences. There were ethnic differences. Listen. <laughs> I have to throw this in. <laughs> when Philip had finished baptizing the Ethiopian eunuch, and knew he was going back to Ethiopia, did he say, Philip, start your Ethiopian worship whatever way you want it? Because ethnically, Ethiopians are not the same as Judeans, so you have your ethnic worship, and we'll have our ethnic worship. No. What's different today? Nothing. Nothing. There are still cultural differences in the church. There's still geographic separation. There is still different generations. There's still economic differences. So what I'm asking, friends, is if we, if they could worship with all of those differences in exactly the same way, and incidentally, you have no, no, no idea that they worship differently wherever they live. If they could do it, why don't we do it? Why not the same worship today, everywhere? Th those from this congregation who have made trips to India and the Philippines and Albania and other places have never, as far as I know, never told any of those groups separated by miles and languages, never told them, worship whatever way you want to worship. You don't have to worship like us. We've always gone and taught them, here's what the New Testament teaches. This is the way everybody worships. Number four, is the use of instruments the only change? Well, friends, if you find a church of Christ that has begun to use mechanical instruments in worship and you examine it carefully, you will see that that is not the only change. It is not. And the reason for that? Because once you give up needing biblical authority for worship practices, what keeps you from making any other changes? You can change one thing, why can't you change something else? If you can change worship, you can change women's leadership roles in the church, can't you? Why not? Why should you change one and not change another? Some of you likely are not familiar with what we call restoration history, the history of the Lord's church. About 150 years ago, churches of Christ divided over the instrumental music question, one of the reasons we divided. The group that pulled off generally became known as the Christian church. 
And, and when some of us were younger, a thousand years ago, when we were younger, there were people who would say the only difference between us and the Christian church is that they use instruments. Really? The Christian church became one of the most liberal denominations of all denominations. They didn't stop with just instrumental music. And, and, and if you were to attend a Christian church now, you would be, I hope, shocked by what it is as compared to what it was. Churches that no longer care how they worship will no longer care whether they stay true to other biblical doctrines. Number five, are we satisfied because we're right? You see, there is a danger also in worshiping correctly, and that danger is we can become arrogant or we can become contentious about it. We can become self-satisfied. We can simply go through the motions of worship. I listed on the outline Amos 5. We've read this before, but I want you to listen to it again, or you can look at it, if you will, Amos 5, beginning verse 21. I want you to listen how God views some worship. I hate, this is God, I hate, I despise your feast days. Had they stopped worshiping? Well, correctly they had stopped. They stopped worshiping correctly, but they were still worshiping. I do not savor your sacred assemblies. Though you offer me burnt offerings and your grain offerings, I will not accept them, nor will I regard your fattened peace offerings. Take away from me the noise of your songs, for I will not hear the melody of your stringed instruments. We don't want worship simply to become an exercise through which we go because we've always gone through it. And, and in that regard, I want to add one other thing, and that is we really need to be careful to separate what we do from the way we do it. I'll, I'll talk about this a little bit more in a different vein. The first church I worked with, the Southeast Church in Oklahoma City, was a small church. And, and, and in a men's business meeting, we didn't have elders, in a men's business meeting, somebody said, I'm concerned because this was his concern. It's not mine. Uh-oh, we're not going to have a contribution today. We don't have any contribution plates. Just keep your money. No, the contribution plates look just like ours, just like the other emblem holders. And, and we did, as we do, we separate, we put a song there, but we just, at that church, we just did three things in a row. Bread, fruit of the vine, giving. Three in a row. Somebody said, I think we need to be sure people understood that, understand that giving is not a part of the Lord's Supper. 
it's different. It's a part of worship, but it's not a part of the Lord's Supper. So somebody comes up with this brilliant idea. Let's just do that really early in the service. Let's sing one song, and then let's do our giving. I don't know how long we had done that, but a member told me that a visitor sitting at the back of the auditorium got up and said, I'm leaving. This is one, another one of those off-brand groups. Because we had the contribution early in the service, and that wasn't the way it was supposed to be. We, we can get so used to what we do that we begin to think that's what we have to do. Right? We used to end our service with a prayer, didn't we? You know why we stopped that? Why you stopped why did you stop it? Why'd we stop it? <laughs> no, we stopped it because we didn't want another man to have to get up. We thought, you know, we'll just we'll just uh, ha have the guy that makes the announcements lead a prayer, and then we'll end with a song. That's fine. Hey, but that's not the only way you can do it. And please don't go to another service and say, they ended with a prayer and not a song. That doesn't make any difference. Whether we have, I'll get to this again, three songs, five songs, two songs, it really is not that that matters. Okay. Enough for ending. Number six, church of Christ or church of culture. It, I think it becomes evident that the desire to appeal to current culture has influenced some churches of Christ to change their worship. Culture is different. This is the age of the millennials, or it's the age of somebody else, and they don't listen the way that they, people used to listen. They don't think the way people used to listen. So let's change things to be sure that we appeal to them. Churches that change because of cultural reasons will have to keep on changing because culture always changes. Doesn't it? Did Paul ever endorse a changing gospel? Not if what he wrote, he wrote by inspiration. In Galatians 1, verses 6 through 10, he even pronounces an anathema, a curse of God, on those who would change the gospel. Part of the gospel teaches about what we do in worship. So are those today that want to change and don't want to do what the New Testament prescribes, are they under the anathema of God? Incidentally, in verse 10, Paul says, For if I still pleased men, I would not be a bondservant of Christ. Neither would we. Number seven, what is not being asked? Sadly, a lot of wrong questions are being asked by changing churches, and that is what pleases us, what will draw the most people, what will make denominational people comfortable with us in our services. 
And they don't ask the most important question. What does the Bible say? If we are to honor the Word of God, let's just let the Bible speak and let's obey what it says. Number eight, faith or opinion. Faith involves conviction based upon revealed truth, Romans 10, 17. But opinion is judgment based upon personal preference. Not wrong to have opinions. I just mentioned it a few minutes ago. We can all have an opinion about how many songs we really ought to sing. Right, David? David told me, I've heard David say this a number of times years ago, we don't sing enough, right? And you preach too much. Is that what you said to me? <laughs> no, he never said that. He just said we don't, he didn't think we sang enough. That's fine. We can all have an opinion about whether we take the Lord's Supper before the sermon or after the sermon. That doesn't matter, does it? Or how long a sermon ought to be. A lot shorter, shouldn't they? As long as we do not demand that other people accept our opinions. That's when we get in trouble, folks. But on the other hand, let me say this. It is wrong to elevate unscriptural practices and call them opinions. You may have had one of those sad conversations where you're trying to talk to someone about the fact that the New Testament does not allow instrumental music, and they'll say, well, that's your opinion. They have, they have said a faith matter for you is an opinion to them, and you should accept it as an opinion. If you're going to do that, you could also say oh, it's my opinion that people don't have to be baptized for the remission of their sins. And if you think otherwise, that's just your opinion. Let's be careful about that. This next one is not on the outline. And, but I do, did want to share it with you. Is silence in worship matters permissible? Is, it, is silence permissible in worship matters? Should we go by what the New Testament does not authorize? That, that's a long, complicated subject. I don't have the time to go through all of that, but here's why I'm bringing it up. Some people will tell us that since there is no command that says you shall not use instrumental music in worship, that they have the liberty to do it. They say there's no command, therefore it is permissible. That's a most dangerous road to travel. First of all, we are commanded to sing. The only commands are to sing. There are no commands... As we have pointed out, there are no commands to play instruments in the, new in the church era. No commands to play instruments. And so the question we would ask our friends is, do you want to argue that it is better to speak where God has not spoken 
And does that mean that you think it's better to speak where God has not spoken than to be silent where he has not spoken? Which do you prefer, to speak where he's never spoken or to obey his silence to believe that that is to be honored? Can you do anything that God has not expressly forbidden? Well, we could use heroin in our worship, couldn't we? Because there is no command that expressly forbids it. When you travel that road, you are traveling a very dangerous road. Yes, Scott. Say it loudly, please, because we got... The, the, one of the greatest dangers facing the Lord's church today, as we have talked about before, is pragmatism. The end justifies the means. Whatever it takes, that's what we'll do. Wrong. Not whatever it takes, whatever God wants. That's what we do. Thank you for being here. Thank you for letting me be a part of your class.